on WHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. I want to return to what we were talking about yesterday on the show, which is Ira Helfen's receiving a really prestigious award, putting him in the, in the, in the company of some of the most distinguished luminaries and political activists of our time and in years gone by as well. In today's Republican, the lead editorial, Helfen's award is far more than symbolic. I want to share a few sentences. Every human being who has shared Ira Helfen's dream has failed to see it materialize. That doesn't make Helfen's vision, and yes, his optimism, despite our time of crippling political cynicism, any less worthy. In fact, it elevates and ennobles it, which makes the retired doctor from Northampton a most worthy recipient of a prestigious award, the Gandhi King Akeda Community Builders Award from Morehouse College in Atlanta. The award honors Mahatma Gandhi, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and Tosako Ikeda, the Japanese leader of an international Buddhist peace movement numbering some 12 million people. The organization that Helfen founded back from the brink is determined to reduce the risk of nuclear war. This editorial goes on to mention Jimmy Carter and the reduction in nuclear weapons, some 50,000 warheads having been destroyed, and concludes with this. To Helfen, Russian aggression in Ukraine shows why it is critical to move away from the brink of nuclear war. History is filled with examples of people of vision who accomplish things others called impossible. Ira Helfen is among them. We admire his long commitment and sense of hope. Well, I'm all for hope, but I continue to worry about the ways in which we are and continue to be on the brink, both in Ukraine and in Taiwan. And here to help us understand how serious or not the situation is uh, in Ukraine and in Taiwan, we have Michael Clare. Michael Clare is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. He is a member of an arms. What's the name of the group? And uh, uh, I always uh, misstate the title. The name of the group in Washington that you are involved with, Michael, you go there every month? The Arms Control Association. Thank you. The Arms Control Association. Michael Clare has been with us since before the Ukraine war started on a regular basis, and we really appreciate him being back with us today. In particular, we want you to know about Michael's presentation tomorrow at Amherst College, 6.30 in the Coles Assembly Room. Again, 6.30 tomorrow evening at Amherst College. Michael Clare, there have been front-page stories for weeks now about what the Chinese, what the what the Chinese government has been doing in terms of war games in Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits, and it comes, it goes. It doesn't seem to have the urgency in the reporting that the actual stories convey. There's a disconnect here. How serious is the situation? Give us a bit of a preview of tomorrow night. Oh my gosh! Well, there the Chinese have been conducting air and naval maneuvers around Taiwan for years now. This typically includes sending half dozen or a dozen warplanes, a couple of ships 
into the airspace, the sea space surrounding Taiwan. But the numbers of these have increased substantially since last summer when Nancy Pelosi made her famous visit to Taiwan on August 2nd. Since then, the numbers of these intrusions have increased substantially. Uh, now, now, you could view these as practice runs for war with Taiwan or political intimidation. But just this past weekend, we saw the biggest surge in these kind of activities since uh, the beginning, since the very beginning. And this is interpreted as a response to the meeting last week between the president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy that took place in California last week. Over the weekend, China sent as many as 90 planes into Taiwanese airspace and a dozen ships. And many, many analysts uh, interpret this as more than just a warning, but an indication that China is intent upon using military force to seize Taiwan if it were to declare independence or, or something of that magnitude. Now, we could question whether that's the case, but it certainly was an escalation in the use of force around Taiwan and, and a significant concern. And you, you could hear now in Washington people saying that the U.S. has to up its game, provide more weaponry to Taiwan, uh, send more ships and planes there. And in fact, the U.S. aircraft carrier, the USS Nimitz, is in the area uh, conducting naval maneuvers of its own. So there's a very high level of military activity in the Western Pacific, in the South China Sea, and the area around Taiwan. I'd like to know what an invasion of Taiwan would look like. And in particular, what confuses me, which I what I really don't understand, is how the Chinese government would take over Taiwan. Taiwan is not a, a, a country, a part of a country, depending on how you look at it, um, that the Chinese government wants to destroy. It's not similar to what Putin is doing to Ukraine. What would this war look like? So uh, I rely on um, a report from the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Uh, they talk about, they conducted uh, 20 war games last year of exactly what you're describing, an invasion of Taiwan, and it gives us an idea of what would happen. But before I talk about that, let me let me make it very clear, uh, Bill and Buzz, uh, I think China is using military forces right now to intimidate Taiwan, to, th to think by, by, you know, this major show of force that could intimidate the Taiwanese to back down. Now, I don't think that's going to work, uh, but I don't think that China is actually ready to invade Taiwan because the costs will be so high. What they'd have to do is send tens, probably hundreds of thousands of troops across 100 miles of water in amphibious assault ships and seize a beachhead on Taiwan, which is heavily defended. The Taiwanese have a pretty strong military. They have a lot of weapons supplied by the United States. So 
moving 100,000 Chinese sh troops across 100 miles of water could be suicidal. Those amphibious ships would be easy targets for attack planes, for submarines, which Taiwan has. And if the US were to intervene, uh, those ships would, would be sunk before they ever landed on a beach. And the few that managed to get through would, would be uh, subject to the kind of meat grinder war that you see in eastern Ukraine, where Russian soldiers are being slaughtered in the many tens or hundreds of thousands. So this would be a suicidal invasion, which was the outcome of the war games played by the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So I don't think, and, and when it was all done, uh, Taiwan would be rubble. So what, what benefit would China have from this? It would, it would be subject to international isolation and economic penalties like Russia has. And that's the last thing the Chinese want. So I, I, I think these military maneuvers are, are, are more political show than anything else, because in response to your question, an invasion of Taiwan would be absolutely the wrong thing for China to do. Is the reality or the realistic outcome of such an invasion enough to dissuade the Chinese leadership going forward for the indefinite future, in your opinion? That's very hard to say. Um, the Chinese leadership have said they do not want to use military force. They want to use non-military means of persuasion. Uh, the problem here is that uh, the Taiwanese uh, uh, people are are being uh, ignored in the in the discussion. Uh, the majority of the Taiwanese people, when asked, say they would like the status quo where they have complete uh, autonomy, complete independence to run their own show and are not under constant threat of attack. But you see what's happening in Washington is the Republicans in particular are using Taiwan as a battering ram to go after Biden and the Democrats by saying, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, we've got a bolster our support for Taiwan, as shown by Kevin McCarthy's visit with the Taiwanese president. Uh, so all of this is goading China. That's the intent of it, to goad China, to poke China, uh, to show US supremacy and, and, and the like, and, and to use Taiwan as a political wedge in the coming elections, showing complete disrespect for what the Taiwanese people want, which is to be left alone. Michael Clare, you'll be speaking at Amherst College tomorrow evening. Is this the topic you'll be addressing? Uh, I'll be part of a panel with others on artificial intelligence and war. Where are we headed? This is a, a panel organized by the AI and the social sciences or, or the liberal arts that Amherst College is conducting to explore how artificial intelligence, which is invading more and more of our life, military and otherwise, 
uh, how artificial intelligence is altering the nature of war and what dangers that poses to us. And again, this will be where? In the coal assembly room at uh, Amherst College. 6.30 tomorrow evening. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to ask Michael Clare for an update on Ukraine. There have been very dire reports recently. I want to find out whether they are real. We'll be right back. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hear Howie at Broadside Books. Maybe you've read Howie's poems and reviews in Great River Review, Nimrod, Cutthroat, Off the Coast, or Nine Mile. Howie gets around. He jokes that he's an adjunct emeritus. He's taught creative writing at so many different colleges, a five-time Pushcart Prize nominee, lives in Florence, and volunteers at the Center for New Americans. At Broadside, Howie will read from his newly published volume of poetry, Stay. So go. Hear Howie Feierstein read from Stay tonight at 7 at Broadside Books. Business West announces the 2023 Difference Makers. This year's honorees include Burns Maxey of City Space, Claudia Pasmani and Gabrielle Gould of the Amherst Area Chamber of Commerce and Business Improvement District, and Gary Rome, president of Gary Rome Auto Group. Join Business West on April 27th at the Log Cabin and celebrate the Difference Makers. Network with hundreds of business and civic leaders. The 2023 Difference Makers, sponsored by Burkhart Pizzinelli PC, the Royal Law Firm, Tommy Car Auto Group, and Westfield Bank. Celebrate the Business West Difference Makers, April 27th at the log cabin. Have you ever gone swimming with a polar bear, scuba dived with crocodiles? Amos Nahom has, and his nature photography has made him the BBC's Wildlife Photographer of the Year twice. Now he's coming to Northampton's Academy of Music for an Earth Day show Saturday, April 22nd. He'll share his breathtaking images, the thrilling stories behind the photos, and his message of harmony with the natural world. Visit aomtheater.com to get your tickets today for Amos Nahom, funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism, and visit Hampshire County. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, among other positions that he holds. Of course, a prolific author on security issues and energy and geopolitical issues that confront us. Michael Clare, I want to return to Ukraine Get your perspective. When you were last here, you told us that we can look forward. I'm not sure that's quite the phrase, but we can anticipate a counteroffensive by Ukraine in the coming weeks. I'm wondering if you could update on that, what you expect to happen, and how critical the next few weeks are apt to be for this, this war. Well, it's no secret, Bill, that 
the Ukrainian military is planning their own spring offensive uh, to begin at any time now. Uh, Russia had, had a winter offensive, and that winter offensive seems to have run out of steam at Bakhmut, uh, the city which has been the center of fighting for the past few months. The Russians seem to have captured about 80% of the city, uh, but, but it's not a city that has great strategic value, but it became kind of the center the focal point of, of Russian fighting. And they seem to have captured about 80% of the city, but not the whole city. And in the process, they've lost tens of thousands of troops. Uh, and it, it sort of took the punch out of the Russian winter offensive. And now things are likely to turn to the Ukrainian side as they mount their offensive. It's no secret that they're planning this. They've, they've created special brigades, uh, assault brigades, equipped with Western-style weapons, tanks and armored vehicles and the like, and mine-clearing weapons, because the, the Russians have planted mines all along the front lines, and those are very dangerous for advancing troops. So uh, these uh, Ukrainian brigades are supposedly training and planning to overcome Russian defenses. That's no secret. Where exactly they're going to attack is the big secret, and various theories have been made uh, whether they'll attack in the center by Donetsk and Luhansk, the, the Donbass region, in the north around Kharkiv, where they've made a lot of advances in the past, or in the south, uh, around Kherson and Zaporizhia, uh, in an aim to sever, uh, cut off uh, the Crimea from the rest of Russian-held territory, from the Donbass. Right, right now, those two areas are connected by a so-called land bridge, and um, my guess is Ukraine is going to, the Ukrainians are going to try to sever that land bridge by attacking in the southeast all the way up to the Sea of Azov and isolating Crimea, possibly as part of a plan to attack Crimea itself. I'm not sure. Uh, but that's what we have to wait and see. Okay. So you expect that to unfold in the next few weeks? Yes. Let me ask you this. There were considerable number of uh, media reports that Ukraine might not have the weaponry it needs, the shells, the and, and so on. Are the, is that a concern from the Ukrainian point of view? The concern is not the weapons itself, the shooters. I, I think they have enough shooters. The question is whether they have enough ammunition, as you said. And some of the leaked documents that have shown up on social media suggest that the U.S. is worried about, U.S. leadership is worried about this that the Ukrainians don't have enough. Uh, all I could say, it's an, uh, impossible for uh, people like us without access to secret information to really judge the accuracy of these claims. I think it all depends on tempo of fighting. I, I'm sure the Ukrainians have enough for a few weeks of intense offensive fighting. 
but do they have enough for a sustained months-long battle? That I would question. The Russians also are running out of ammunition. That seems to what be what's happened with their winter offensive, that they just ran out of steam. Uh, so, the, so I'm sure the Ukrainians have enough for a big start, but what, whether they could sustain it is the question. And then comes the bigger question behind all that, will the two sides at some point be able to sit down at a bargaining table and say enough is enough, we have to end this. And that's what I think will happen when all of the, these two offensives have, have concluded in the summer or in the fall. A conversation we will continue next time we have Michael Clare back with us. Michael Clare, thank you so very much for your insights and your time. We really appreciate it. Hope you have a great panel discussion tomorrow evening, 630 Amherst College. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Michael. Sure thing. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMB News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Holyoke man pleaded not guilty in connection with damaging more than a dozen headstones at a cemetery in Northampton. 19-year-old Matthew James DeLude is facing multiple charges, including OUI and speeding. DeLude told police he saw three cars coming at him, one of which was traveling in the wrong direction in his lane of travel causing him to run off the road and into St. Mary's Cemetery. Over 20 headstones were damaged, which could cost over $100,000 to repair. Property owners of vacant storefronts in East Hampton will soon be required to register their buildings and pay a fee. The funds will be used to create an online database of rentals in the city. City Council approved new regulations last week, which are aimed at curbing blight and encouraging use of the 15 to 20 vacant properties downtown. Starting July 1st, all property owners will be required to register vacant storefronts with the city's building commissioner within 90 days of the space becoming empty. As part of that registration, the building owner will be required to pay a non-refundable permit fee of $5 for the entire year the building becomes vacant. Water and sewer regulations in Amherst are now in place following a town council meeting last week, but a decision on whether the town will take over maintenance and repair of the water and sewer lines has not been decided. There were some concerns from homeowners who are currently responsible for repairs on their property, even though infrastructure belongs to the public sector. Due to the potential cost to the town, the regulations and bylaws didn't address the topic. Councillor Anna Devlin-Gothier says she's planning on bringing a motion forward at a future meeting. Partly to mostly sunny and breezy today. That breeze will make for another day of very high brush fire danger. It's best not to burn today. A high of 70 to 74. Scattered clouds, evening temperatures in the 60s, overnight low 46 to 52. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Reshevega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, emitió el lunes un comunicado sobre las actualizaciones de su oficina y diferentes proyectos de la ciudad. Una de estas actualizaciones se enfocó a la consulta que se haría por medio de una pregunta en la boleta electoral, la cual permitiría que los votantes decidan si se reduce el impuesto del CPA, que es la Ley de Preservación Comunitaria, del 1.5 al 1%, tal y como recomienda el Comité de Finanzas. Creo firmemente que existe un apoyo unánime entre todos los concejales, incluido yo mismo, para permitir que los votantes decidan si se reduce el impuesto del CPA. En la última reunión del Consejo de la Ciudad, el asunto terminó con una votación dividida. Por lo que observé, existe un desacuerdo sobre en qué elección presentar la pregunta a los votantes, dijo García. Distintos argumentos de los concejales sugieren que ciertas elecciones tienen mejor participación electoral que otras. Algunos concejales opinan que las elecciones locales de noviembre, en las que solo se votará por los concejales, serán menos concurridas que las estatales. El alcalde García informó que dado que viene una elección presidencial en 2024, ha vetado la medida y envió una carta al Consejo de la ciudad, invitándoles a enviar esto de nuevo a la comisión para su posterior debate y de acuerdo en colocar la pregunta en la boleta para las elecciones del Estado y las elecciones presidenciales de 2024. En informaciones relacionadas, la oficina del alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, compartió el lunes actualizaciones relacionadas con las infraestructuras públicas que estarán ocurriendo en las próximas semanas y meses del año en curso. Entre estos proyectos se mencionó el proyecto de reemplazo de aceras, el cual está en marcha. La pavimentación de 2023 de las calles está en marcha. El fresado está programado para esta semana para ser seguido por la pavimentación tan pronto como la próxima semana. Yo soy Johan Reshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are in the studio with Steve Sanderson, who is the events producer for the Northampton Arts Council and a radio show star. <laughs> Congratulations on your new gig, Steve Sanderson. Thanks, Bill. The it, morning show on the river, introduced by one Monty Belmonte, saying a worthy <laughs> successor indeed. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Buzz. People's, everyone is really excited about your new show, and we encourage our listeners to check it out. Okay, we have with us today in the studio two two stars of, well... Of our Northampton public school system. We have two musicians from Northampton High. We have Ezra Pasalacqua, and we have Jaden Meltzer. Okay, and they are here because? They are here because we are having a benefit concert on Friday night for the J. Scott Brandon Fund. Which is? which is a fund that eliminates financial boundaries for public school students in Northampton so that they can get music lessons, private extra music lessons for gifted young students. Which was inspired by what? Inspired by my, ex, my old bandmate and best friend, Scott Brandon, who was the bass player for the Drunk Stuntman. Which was your band? Which was my band, yes. And Scott and I, Bow Bow, as he was affectionately known as, met in the band room in our hometown of Taunton High, in Taunton High School. And so this is a fundraiser for students, musicians at Northampton High to make sure that they can pursue their dreams? Exactly, because lessons are very expensive, especially year after year, week after week. They, it really adds up, and, you know, financially, uh, some families and students may be excluded from lessons, and that would be a shame. Okay, so tell us... 
introduce, if you would, the two student student musicians who we have with us in the studio. So Ezra Pasalacqua has been organizing the concert in school. He is the Northampton Arts Council's Northampton High Arts intern, and I'm going to turn it over to him, and he can introduce his friend. Okay. Ezra. Hey, it's great to be here. It's my friend Jaden over here on the keys and the vocals. Okay. And tell us a bit about what the concert will be Friday evening. Oh, it's going to be great. There's a bunch of... Friday night. Fr- Friday night. It's going to be a bunch of local uh, bands that are all composed of some really talented high school kids who are going to be performing to uh, you know, provide this uh, financial support for these students who really deserve it. At the Academy of Music? No. It's going to be at JJ's Tavern upstairs. Oh, at JJ's Tavern. Oh, terrific, terrific, terrific. Well, tell us, where do we get tickets, or do we just go? You just go. What we are doing is we are taking donations at the door, whatever you want to give. You can also go to the Northampton Arts Council website, northamptonartscouncil.org, and there's a way to give there if you can't make the concert. And, again, what time is the concert, or what time do we go? Starts right at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. at? JJ's JJ's Tavern in Florence, upstairs. Okay, sounds terrific. So, you want to introduce what we're about to hear? It's my friend uh, Jaden Meltzer, and he's going to be uh, performing a song for us. Jaden, what are you going to be performing? I'm going to be performing uh, Coney Island Baby by Tom Waits. Okay, um, and you'll be performing Friday evening? I will be, yes, with my band Desolation Sound. The name of the band is? Desolation Sound. Okay, well, I think that... Is in is in line with and consistent with drunk stuntness. <laughs> well, Steve Sanderson is our mentor. What the heck? <laughs> okay, let's hear it. All right. Every night she comes to take me out to dreamland When I'm with her, I'm the richest man in the town She's a rube, she's a pearl, she's my spin on the world All the stars make their wishes on her eyes She's my Coney Island baby She's my Coney Island girl comes to take me out to dreamland when I'm with her I'm the richest man in the town she's a root she's a pearl she's my spin on the world all the stars make their wishes on her eyes 
She's my Coney Island, baby. She's my Coney Island girl. She's a princess in a red dress. She's the moon in the mist to me. She's my Coney Island, baby. She's my Coney Island girl. JJ's Tavern, Friday evening, what time? 7 p.m. And there will be how many bands and performances all together, give or take? About six bands performing. Okay, and give what you can, donate at the door. Please do. Don't have Much to appreciate it. Don't have to buy tickets in advance. And one more time, this is going to a fabulous cause. Steve Sanderson. It's going to the J. Scott Brandon Fund, the JSB Fund. It's going to pay for lessons. It's going to break down financial barriers for public school students in Northampton. Ezra, Jaden, Steve, thank you all so very much. Have a great time. I'm sure it's going to be a fabulous concert. JJ Taverns, JJ's Tavern, Florence, 6.30? 7 p.m. 7 o'clock. But if you're there early, you'll get a good seat. <laughs> Friday evening, 7 o'clock, JJ's Tavern in Florence. Thank you all so very much, Ezra, Jaden, Steve. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Buzz. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Buzz. My She's a More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You spend seven or eight hours a night together and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin, Robin from Talon. Think about it, seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated, I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. This is Jessica from Fitness Together in Northampton and Amherst. And while I know we provide next-level personal training, don't just take it from me. I may be getting older, but I'm getting stronger, too. With the help of my trainer at Fitness Together, I'm deadlifting 20 pounds more than I weigh. Now that's exciting, but the best part is how my fitness has improved my mental outlook and feeling of safety. 
Don't let age get in the way. Fitness Together offers private workout suites at our location or virtual training at yours. Contact us to begin the journey back to what you love. Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton. We are here with a very, very special edition of Cool Films with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott, who has with him and us today a very special filmmaker who's having a presentation that you want to know about. Larry Hott, the microphone is yours. Thank you. I'm introducing Julia Mintz, the producer-director of Four Winters, about the Jewish partisans during World War II. Julia has a premiere in Northampton coming up on April 19th at the Academy of Music. Um, this is a fantastic film. I reviewed the film on this show a while ago. Um, I was extremely impressed with it. You can read about it uh, online in many different places. Julia, I want to ask you, uh, just tell me, what is the, what is the purpose of this film? Um, I, I know there are lessons one takes away from it. Could you just describe what this film is about and what, what, do, what, what are the takeaways you, as a producer, what do you take away from this film? Well, good morning. I would say that there's many, many things that are takeaways from the film. I think that the inspiration really lies in the extraordinary bravery and determination to fight back against brutality, fascism, and the overall experience of being suppressed. I mean, I think that the bravery is extraordinarily inspiring. Tell us the story for those of our listeners who don't know it. Sure. The, during World War II, many of us are very familiar with the stories of the 13 million people, I think the number is forever growing, that were killed during the Holocaust, um, I mean, excuse me, during the war in, in Europe and the six million plus Jewish people that were victims of the Holocaust. And what is the more uncommon story is the story of the Jewish partisans. There were over 25, and now again, the numbers on these continue to grow, but between 25 and maybe 30,000 people who joined together in what were called partisan brigades, and they fought, they lived in the forests of Eastern Europe and Belarus. In fact, the partisans were all over Europe, but the film focuses on Eastern Europe, Belarus, Ukraine, region, Poland, Lithuania, um, where they banded together and spent four years, four winters in the woods fighting back against the Nazis and their collaborators and saving one another, and they survived. Is Four you know, Winters... Well, let me ask this, Larry. Go ahead, I, I'd like to know, is Four Winters in our, a collection of archival footage? Is it a recreation? What is it? So the film is actually quite a unique documentary film in that it is told solely in the voices of the partisans themselves. So... There's tremendous scholarship that informed this work, and the scholarship was essential. And yet, on camera, we only 
hear, see, have the experience of joining with the Jewish partisans who were part of these armed brigades that blew up trains, blew up telegraph stations, um, invaded <laughs> Nazi infrastructure, and fought back. Larry Hot. I wanted to ask you about the characters in the film, because this is very much a character-driven film. Uh, some of the reviews point out that this is the least depressing Holocaust documentary ever made, uh, <laughs> that there is a quite a bit of humor in the film, uh, particularly uh, one character, my favorite, uh, is Faye Shulman. Could you tell me a little bit about Faye Shulman? Uh, what makes her so special? Well, um, Faye Shulman was a photographer before the war, and she learned to develop pictures and shoot, um, shoot both a camera and a gun. But Faye was one of the partisans that we interviewed, and Faye had this extraordinary collection of photographs that she shot in the forest of the partisans themselves. And perhaps some of you have seen some of the footage around and some of the promotional material. Faye's the one in the leopard coat. And she not only shot these photographs, but when she went out on missions, she would hide her photographs that she shot on plates, glass plates, in the earth. And she would come back after missions and uncover them. And then after the war, sort of ferreted out all of these photos that she took. And she would um, steal the chemicals when they went into the towns and villages that were needed and the supplies to take her photographs. And so we have her, not only her story in the film, but she gave us all of her photos to use as part of this telling. And then we collected footage from archives all over the world and from the partisans themselves. This are there archives? Are there archives in the film that were new, that had not been discovered? Um, I remember looking at the film and saying, "I've never seen some of those those images before." Um, how did you find those? Well, the search actually—I had the blessing of this being a passion project, in that it went on for over a decade in between many other films that I was making, and so this on and off. Uh, opportunity, we'll call it, um, enabled us to mine photos literally from all over the world, from people's basements and attics. The partisans themselves were so generous with us. They had collected images that they themselves created their own archives for their personal journey in their lives. I mean, what they had both before the war and during was solely what that was all they could hold on to. So I think many of them over the courses of their lives sort of their families often over and over again tried to find photos of their families and life before the war and of course the actual resistance. In, in addition to the story that you tell about the partisans fighting the Nazis, is there a story about the partisans themselves that comes through with this film? I guess the quest, better question is, is there a narrative arc? Sure. The film it's actually a quite a good question because you'd think that the film would be told linear, and it is. I mean, it holds on to the linear strand of, of the war, right? We start before the war and we end basically at the end of the war. But the film is actually told much more through a thematic lens. It's really about the innocent people and their experience, and it's really the, the linear lens is actually much more about the manifestation of bravery and courage and what it took and how it was possible for them to travel through time and become 
who they had to become, what they had to give up, and ultimately, you know, where that landed them by the time they were liberated and moved on from the war. And we're talking with Julia Mintz, the producer and director of Four Winters. I'm going to ask you about the title. Um, four Winters, in some ways it's obvious, these are four winters during the war that the partisans uh, suffered through, I, I guess. But uh, why that title? What is, the, what is the point of talking about the winters when, of course, they lived through all the seasons in the woods? Um, I remember in one of your interviews, uh, one of the uh, people in the film says it wasn't like the woods were a hotel <laughs> where you could just go find a room. It was hard to even find uh, and connect with the other partisans. So why did, why did you call the film Four Winters? <clears throat> well, actually, I'm glad that you mentioned um, that particular story because just this morning I had the great news. I learned that um, Michael Stoll, who is one of the partisans that is in the film, who we have eight partisans basically who are intercut throughout the film telling the larger collective story of both being in the woods for four winters and, and the larger thematic stories that are brought forward in the film. But the great news I heard this morning is that Michael Stoll is actually going to be joining us in Northampton at the Academy of Music uh, this week for our hometown premiere. And I'm so thrilled to hear this news. Michael is, I believe, 97 or 98 years old, and he will be with us. And he's also going to be with us at the post-screening fundraiser reception. So if folks are interested in having the opportunity to join the local filmmakers and myself and meet Michael, you may want to check us out um, at the post-screening fundraise, post fundraiser reception. And I'm so delighted that he's going to be with us. Um, in regard to the other question about the winters, I think that the thing that is so extraordinary, I mean, we live in New England here. Um, you know, winters are cold. And uh, as the stories of the partisans kept unfolding, it became really clear that not only were they battling against the steel and might of the Nazi war machine and the collaborators and starvation and being hunted in the forest, but they were battling for survival against the elements of the winter. And we get into that in the film in terms of how they made it through. But Julia, I'd like to know, how do we have the pleasure, the honor of this film being showed at the Academy of Music? And again, when? <laughs> the screening is 6.30. At 6.30 at the Academy of Music on the 19th of April. Okay, we got that part. Okay, Dan, you have it queued up in the trailer. Let's hear it. They killed my child and my parents. I was 17 years. We were Jewish boys and girls fighting against the Nazis. I managed to escape with my camera into the woods. We were part of a network of sabotage shacks. There were groups living in hundreds of miles of wild territory. The pillow was the rifle, the walls were the trees, and the sky was the roof. I have to behave not as a woman. I have to behave as a soldier. When your life is depending on it, 
You learn everything quickly. Derail a train. It's beautiful to see it, to be part of it. The braveness, the courage, it grows from you, yes? We wanted to see Hitler with the Nazis defeated and stay alive. Four years in the woods, that's four winters. Larry Hott, we turn the microphone back over to you. So the voices uh, from the film give you a sense of the spirit of these people. But um, there's another counterpoint to that in the film, which is what happened to the partisans when they were caught. I think one of the most terrifying parts of the film is learning what happened to them. There's images of them being marched by the Nazis through the streets before they are tortured and hanged. Um, and it gives you a sense of the incredible courage that it took. Um, and I think in one of your interviews, you were asked what was your inspiration for the film? And you spoke about wanting to overcome the image that the Jews were just lambs who went to the slaughter. And talk a little bit about what inspired you to make this film. I think that the pervasive myth of Jewish passivity against the Nazis and their collaborators is not only disturbing, but I think that it's incorrect. And so when I came across the, the actual people who fought back against the Nazis, it, or Nazism as a whole, it provided a portal to really investigate and understand the circumstances of what people in these regions faced at that time and Ultimately, because these people were able to survive and make it to the forest and then survived long enough to acquire weapons and arms and fight back, it provided a very different and expansive understanding of what actually happened, what we actually saw. Because I think history, over and again, is told by the perpetrators and I think that by shifting the lens and the point of view, we have this very special final telling of what happened. Um, I think one of the things that makes the film so special is that this was the final film on this subject in this way because all but everyone um, except Michael Stoll is now gone. Um, and so it's rather remarkable that we, we were able to catch this in time. So there were real interviews with people who survived out in the, in the forest for four years. You have those voices for original interviews? Yes. Wow. Yeah, it's actually quite cool. I think that unlike a lot of historical films that are told with um, scholars or talking heads and then you kind of cut back to the people who live the story, this film is really quite different. It's intercut and I'll tell you a funny story. When we premiered at Lincoln Center, um, and people were out in the hall mulling right after a woman came up to me and she grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, wow, that was like a movie. <laughs> and I thought that that was such a great and funny thing that she said. But I think what she was really saying was, I forgot it was a documentary because she was really drawn into being together with the partisans themselves. Yes, the highest compl compliment for a documentary filmmaker is for somebody to say, that was like a movie. <laughs> it is a movie, damn it. Um, well, one, last, one last question for you, Julia. Um, the lessons 
for you as an American now, considering what's happening in, in the United States with fascism on the rise, what do you feel? Do you, do you feel like you, there's a lesson for you from this film and a lesson for everybody else? Um, are, are we becoming partisans? Do we need to? Do we need to think about what to do? I think that what we need to do today, every day and always, is we need to find our voice, find our courage, find our bravery. And I think that the partisans can be really deeply, deeply, deeply inspiring for that. And I think that people should come on down to the theater on the 19th at 6.30 and check out this amazing film. And just before we jump off, I want to do a quick call out to... Dean of Dean's Beans, who is one of our major sponsors of this event, the Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival, who's also joining us with that, and Dimitri and Rebecca Robbins and their new space, The Firehouse. And some of them are with me. An old woman. It happens all over Massachusetts. Anytime I choose. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov slash DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. We're seeing the impact of the war in Ukraine. The energy commodities are down by 17% from a year ago. Gasoline down by 17.4%. The Biden administration is trying to get Russia to release a Wall Street Journal reporter or at least to gain access to him. Ambassador Roger Karsten spoke with CBS this CBS Mornings. You know, I really can't get into the specifics of the negotiation and what our strategy is. And for the main reason that every time we negotiate in public, we might be less lessening our chances to actually get a return. What I can tell you is that a lot of options are on the table. They're being considered. There are reports that an American has been detained in Libya. CBS's Cammie McCormick. The State Department says it's aware of the reports which claim American Jeff Wilson has been detained by a militia in Tripoli. The reports claim he's charged with secretly establishing an organization to spread Christianity in Libya. The State Department has a do not travel advisory for that country. President Biden speaking in Northern Ireland this morning marks the 25th year since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement that set up a legislature there. In 1998, it was the longest running conflict in Europe since the end of World War II. Thousands of families have been affected by the troubles. Losses are real. 
The pain was personal. I need not tell many people in this audience. Another Republican fast-tracking a decision on whether to run for the White House in 2024. CBS's Jim Crisula with more. Republican South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is eyeing the White House, issuing a statement on social media. I will never back down in defense of the conservative values that make America exceptional. And that's why I'm announcing my exploratory committee for president of the United States. Scott is expected to make his presidential run official later today. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Get this image in your head. The Terminator fixing a street. CBS's Chris Cruz. Arnold Schwarzenegger had had enough, so he picked up a shovel and, along with a helper, filled the hole with packaged cement. This is crazy. For three weeks I've been waiting for this hole to be closed. Mayor Karen Bass last week announced a plan to address what she called an unprecedented number of new potholes caused by recent storms. Superstar Michael Jordan's shoes from the 1998 NBA Finals sold at auction for $2.2 million, setting a world record for the most expensive sneakers sold ever. This is CBS News. Streamline how you hire with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair, Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. Some amazing music just made the Library of Congress registry. Country Road. John Denver's 1971 hit and Madonna's 1980s album have both been selected for defining the sounds of the country's history and culture. Other singles on the list. For WHMD News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Holyoke man pleaded not guilty in connection with damaging more than a dozen headstones at a cemetery in Northampton. 19-year-old Matthew James DeLude is facing multiple charges, including OUI and speeding. DeLude told police he saw three cars coming at him, one of which was traveling in the wrong direction in his lane of travel causing him to run off the road and into St. Mary's Cemetery. Over 20 headstones were damaged, which could cost over $100,000 to repair. Property owners of vacant storefronts in East Hampton will soon be required to register their buildings and pay a fee. The funds will be used to create an online database of rentals in the city. City Council approved new regulations last week, which are aimed at curbing blight and encouraging use of the 15 to 20 vacant properties downtown. Starting July 1st, all property owners will be required to register vacant storefronts with the city's building commissioner within 90 days of the space becoming empty. As part of that registration, the building owner will be required to pay a non-refundable permit fee of $5 for the entire year the building becomes vacant. 
Water and sewer regulations in Amherst are now in place following a town council meeting last week, but a decision on whether the town will take over maintenance and repair of the water and sewer lines has not been decided. There were some concerns from homeowners who are currently responsible for repairs on their property, even though infrastructure belongs to the public sector. Due to the potential cost to the town, the regulations and bylaws didn't address the topic. Councillor Anna Devlin-Gothier says she's planning on bringing a motion forward at a future meeting. Partly to mostly sunny and breezy today. That breeze will make for another day of very high brush fire danger. It's best not to burn today. A high of 70 to 74. Scattered clouds, evening temperatures in the 60s, overnight low 46 to 52. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. And welcome to our program. This is Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And this is a monthly segment that I just love. I love to learn, and it keeps me learning. It is Smith College professor and attorney Carrie Baker with Feminist Futures. Hello, Carrie. Hi, so great to be here. Oh, it's always great to see you. Yeah, well, I am really thrilled with my guest today. Uh, this is Dr. Lisa Fontes, who is a national and international leader in the fields of child abuse and violence against women. She lives in Amherst and is currently a senior lecturer at the University of Massachusetts in the University Without Walls Department of Interdisciplinary Studies. Her work focuses in particular on cultural issues in child abuse and violence against women and cultural competence in mental health and social services. She's worked extensively in Latin America, including a semester as a Fulbright Scholar in Buenos Aires, Argentina. She works as an expert witness in legal cases related to child abuse and intimate partner violence. And she's the author of one of the very first books on coercive control. It was called Invisible Chains, Overcoming Coercive Control in Your Intimate Relationships. Yeah, but hasn't she done anything? Yeah, she's a very busy woman, very busy woman. So I want to welcome Lisa. Great to have you here today. Thank you, Carrie. I'm delighted to be here. So one of the points of this show is to um, introduce Western Massachusetts to all the really cool, amazing feminists that we have here. And what I think is really distinctive about Lisa is that her mother is one of the original amazing feminists that founded NOW. Lisa, tell us about your mom. Sure. My mother is Muriel Fox, and she was one of the founders of the National Organization for Women. And um, she calls herself Betty Friedan's lieutenant. <laughs> so Betty Friedan was good at giving orders, and, and she followed them. I don't know if she followed anybody else's orders, but she really um, was very instrumental in getting now off the ground, getting uh, publicity for it. She worked in public relations, and so she has been recently writing her memoir at the age of 95, and she wrote about going to that, being part of that first now founding meeting, mimograph, mimeographing the press release and taking it by taxi to all the different um, press offices. So it certainly was a different era. And I was at that now founding meeting as a six-year-old. That's amazing. So you just sort of absorbed it from the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I love hearing stories about your mom. So let's turn to the topic for today, which is uh, one of your areas of expertise, coercive control 
in intimate relationships. Tell me about what that is. Well, coercive control, if you think about domestic violence in a relationship, you might see that there's an incident on January 1st and an incident on July 1st, but it's not that nothing happened between January 1st and July 1st. A whole lot most likely happened with one partner dominating the other. And that all of that universe of things that happened is what we call coercive control. So it can include isolating, monitoring, intimidating, love bombing, verbal abuse, micromanaging, and sexual and physical abuse. But not all those things have to be present for a relationship to be one, of course, of control. So normally when we think about domestic violence, we think about like physical violence, right? Somebody punches another person, somebody kicks another person. But this is a, sounds like a broader array of behavior. And I mean, how, do, how does the physical violence relate to the coercive control? Well, I'd say in the 1980s, uh, people were trying to get the police and the courts to take seriously physical violence that happened in the home. And so they started talking about, you know, punching and breaking bones and kicking to try to get the police and the courts to take this more seriously. In other words, if a woman is getting beat up in her home, isn't that just as important as somebody getting beaten up in a bar? But what happened is that that emphasis sort of pushed to the side all the aspects of control that are also present. And in some relationships, there's no physical violence. There's just this domination. And just to be clear, Carrie, we're talking about domination, not just bossiness. So tell me more about that. I mean, why should, is coercive control considered domestic violence? Or, you know, like, is it something that, you know, the law needs to address? Um, in Since 2015, in the United Kingdom, they have had laws against coercive control. So these are not laws that mandate being nice to your partner. They mandate that everybody should have the right to freedom. And so one person does not have the right to take away somebody else's ability to associate with other people, um, to express themselves, to have access to their own money just because they're partners or they're married. They've, so they've had, what is it, seven years now of experience with that in the United Kingdom. In the US, there are five states currently that have laws against coercive control, and they're in family um, code. So they really concern protective orders and they concern matters of child custody. They're not criminal laws. In the United Kingdom, they're, they're criminal laws. Massachusetts has a couple of proposals this year um, in the legislature that would put to a couple of aspects of course with control into the law. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you about them. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, so first I wanna recommend that people go to the website of the Massachusetts Family Advocacy Coalition. The Massachusetts Family Advocacy Coalition, which is www.massfamily.org. And they're working on improving the laws that affect families in Massachusetts. There are two important bills before the legislature this year. One is Bill HD 1844 and SD 1975, which is an act to improve protections related to domestic violence, basically by saying that coercive control 
is a form of domestic violence. And this is really important because sometimes people have not been beaten and don't have bruises or they don't have any record of them, but they have been intimidated, they've been deprived of access to their own money, um, they've been manipulated and so on. So this bill would make coercive control a form of domestic violence and therefore in family law, um, the domestic violence laws would apply. Um, and then there's another act, which is um, Bill HD 2611 and SD 2054, which is an act relative to controlling and abusive litigation. This is to try to avoid a situation where a domestic abuser could take their former part partner to court, you know, 10, 20, 100, the most I've heard of is 220 times in a period of seven years um, after divorce. So a lot of people think that domestic violence ends when um, the person who's being victimized manages to get free from their abuser, either move out or kick the abuser out. But actually, there's a lot of post-separation abuse typically, and one form that takes is abusive litigation. So this bill would make it easier for the courts to stop that. When, if they can see that that um, hearings are being scheduled and charges are being filed simply to harass one person, they could stop it. Well, and that law is introduced by Natalie Blaze, right? Our local representative, I think. Um, and all of our, like Lindsay Sabados has signed on to both of these bills and, and Joe Comerford, some of our other local reps. Um, so th that's great. So I, I wanted to ask you, it, is physical violence is coercive control always a precursor to physical violence? And, it, you know, and is it a sign that physical violence might be coming? If you don't mind, I just want to go back to those bills for one oh, second sorry. and say that you're absolutely right. Our local representatives are wonderful on this issue and have signed on once they got the information. But I'd like to ask all your listeners to encourage them to talk to their family and friends in other parts of the state and get them to press their representatives to sign on to these laws. So you were asking about whether coercive control is a precursor to physical violence. Sometimes it is. And sometimes, significantly, sometimes it's a precursor actually to a lethal incident. So in 20% of incidents of domestic violence homicide, there is no prior physical violence. Okay, I'm going to say that again because it's kind of amazing. In 20% of domestic violence homicides, there is no prior physical violence, but there is almost always coercive control. And it's when the abuser feels like they are losing control of their partner um, because the partner is leaving or because the partner just won't submit any longer that they become um, homicidally um, violent. So course of control and, and the physical abuse can go in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes the physical abuse is what you might call mild. So it might be, you know, pushing somebody or, or being violent with them during sex. When I say mild, I don't mean that it doesn't hurt. It's horrible, but it, 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 it's not the kind of thing that most people would bring to their local police station. Um, it, you know, it's just quote unquote, just pushing or, um, turning over the dining table or, or throwing objects near the person. It's not actual blows. So it makes it hard to report to law enforcement 
but it's still absolutely devastating to a person's sense of well-being. And I think we, we need to note that children are really impacted by this too. So if someone is um, coercively controlling their partner, any children in the household, any children nearby are also victimized. They are aware of the tension. They also live in fear. They see the way that their parent is unfree and frightened and um, and this has long-term effects for them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of the red flags in a relationship that coercive control is there? I think it's important to think about isolation. So coercive control relationships often start really fast. Um, so two people meet each other and next thing you know, they're living together. Um, they, the abuser's name is on their bank account. Um, she's pregnant. Um, she, he, the abuser has said, I love you within the first couple of weeks. So it often starts very, very fast. And the person who, I, I, you know, people don't always like the word victim, but I'm just gonna use it here for shorthand. Um, the victim, before she knows it, feels obligated to say, I love you, and maybe make a commitment, maybe get pregnant. Um, before she's really had a chance to get her bearings. So they start fast and the, the victim becomes isolated. She may find that it, she doesn't have time to see her friends and family. She may find that her new partner is uncomfortable with them or is, is drunk around them or rages around them. So she is increasingly isolated. Um, so, so isolation is a really big red flag. We are speaking with Lisa Fontes, the Feminist Futures guest of Professor Carrie Baker. We're talking about coercive controls in intimate partner relationships, and we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues, our demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. For 50 years, the Center for Women and Community has provided trauma-informed leadership and advocacy services, including 24-hour free and confidential support for survivors and their loved ones throughout Hampshire County. April is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. CWC is here for you. If you've been impacted by violence, call the Sexual Assault Support and Advocacy Hotline for information, support, and resources. Learn about volunteer and professional staff opportunities at umass.edu slash CWC. At the Northampton Survival Center, we believe that no one should choose between paying bills or buying food. En el Northampton Survival Center, creemos que nadie debería elegir entre pagar sus cuentas o comprar alimentos. We supply free groceries for people in 18 Hampshire County communities in a safe outdoor distribution. Proveemos comestibles gratis a personas en 18 comunidades del condado de Hampshire en una distribución segura y al aire libre. For information about grocery pickup or delivery, call 413 413- 
586-6564 o visit NorthamptonSurvival.org Para información sobre recogida o entrega de comestibles, llame al 413-586-6564 o visítenos en NorthamptonSurvival.org If the challenges of the past year have left you needing help, we are here for you. Si las dificultades del año pasado lo han llevado a necesitar ayuda, estamos aquí para usted. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. This is Feminist Future with uh, Professor Carrie Baker of Smith College and her guest, Professor Lisa Fontes. Uh, Lisa, the question which I have, I think there's a bright line in terms of domestic violence. Don't get violent, right? And not that people don't cross that, but that it's an easier thing to understand. Do not hit someone, do not grab someone, etc. But when we're talking about coercive control, we're all products of the experience we grew up with and surrounded ourselves with. And like bullying, it's sometimes hard for the bullier or the coercive controller to know where the bright line is between acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Can you explain for us that? Sure. So first, let me say that there may not be as quite a bright line as you think in physical violence either. So, um, a lot, and a lot of times people who abuse their partners choose to engage in behaviors like grabbing, like um, pushing, like being a little rough during sex with the, really the intention of dominating their partner, but trying to leave no footprints basically, or no fingerprints and trying to not do anything that will make her go to the police even if she lives in fear. So that bright line is complicated, but the bright line is complicated in, in a lot of issues. I mean, it's complicated in child abuse as well. I, I wanna say that in places where they do have laws on course of control, they are not being used for trivial matters. They are being used for people who have been deprived of access to their own money. So they're earning a paycheck and they have not been allowed to spend it. Um, because their partner is effectively stealing um, from them, or they have been confined to the home, um, or they have been manipulated into signing away their inheritance or signing away a whole series of rights. So in places where they do have laws on course of control, you know, they, they are being applied to the more extreme events. I don't, I'm not so worried that about I, I think that people who want to oppose these laws for a range of reasons like to say, oh, people are going to get arrested if they just say a nasty word to their, their wife. And, and that's just not the case at all. Um, it has to be a, a multi-pronged pattern of behavior over time. So even somebody who's verbally abusive would not be found as being coercively controlling unless they were verbally abusive and abusive in terms of money or physical abuse or sexual abuse. So there have to be various um, tactics for something to be considered coercive control. I have a question having to do with court involvement. And my concern is when courts get involved, stories are legion about women who have received a restraining order, a protective order from a court, and end up as a homicide victim. I'm wondering what you think about court involvement and whether this is a good thing. 
yeah, thank you for asking that, Bill. I mean, certainly we need to reform the court system, and that's what um, the Massachusetts um, Family Advocacy Coalition is, is trying to do. Um, there's no doubt that we need to reform family court and criminal court, and, there, and there's a lot of things going on. But let me say that the courts are already involved. So when couples separate, there is already, if there is domestic abuse, there is much more likely to be a battle over custody. And without laws on course of control, um, women, because it's more often women who are being victimized, are being forced to turn over their children, um, you know, months old even, to somebody who has harmed them um, and who is possibly dangerous to that child, and they have no recourse. So the courts are already involved, um, but they certainly could be much better prepared um, than they are now. So, I mean, courts don't handle anything perfectly, right? But we're not going to say, oh, the courts shouldn't get involved with, you know, whatever, forgery or something because they don't handle them perfectly. So we're talking to Dr. Lisa Fontes, who's a University of Massachusetts professor and expert in coercive control. Um, I wanted to ask, I know you are an expert witness in a lot of cases, and I, what are Give me some examples of of situations of coercive control where you have felt like it would be helpful to have this law passed that's that's currently pending that would help um, address the issue. Oh boy, <laughs> um, there are so many. It's it's um, a little bit hard to know where to turn. Um, so let's say um, let me talk about a couple. Um, I'll use a couple in another state. Um, where they had lived together over time. He had previously coercively controlled and physically abused uh, the, the, the parent, the mom of his uh, first child by a first marriage, and they share custody. And he refuses to follow any sort of visitation schedule. He comes and picks up the kid whenever he wants. He um, drives at dangerously high speed, he doesn't pick up the child when he's supposed to, etc. He, he starts another relationship, gets somebody else pregnant, um, marries her, they have another kid together, and after a period of time he does exactly the same thing. So he will not share any of his money, that he has substantial money, with his, his wife. Um, she is working long hours um, over a period of years, she tries to kick him out. She can't kick him out. It, you know, it, it kind of drags on and on and on. But finally, when he does get out of the house, he is again um, coming back in, and she is being forced to turn her little child over to him, um, or he keeps threatening to call the police. So, he, and he has not been physically violent with her, although was sexually violent. So, if there was a law on course of control, I believe that she would be able to demonstrate more easily to the court that his behaviors, his um, taking advantage of her financially, his manipulations around the child and refusing to leave the home, et cetera, were part of a pattern of coercive control. Now, as an expert witness, I tried to dem I demonstrated that anyway, and, and but the law would have made that whole process a lot easier. How is coercive control related to gender and sort of uh, male-female relationships? Right. 
That's a really important question. Um, people who use coercive control can be of any gender and people who are victimized of, by coercive control can be of any gender. Um, but all society supports men being in, in control, being on top, getting ahead and getting their own needs met. When boys are growing up, typically uh, they are taught to be competitive and to win. Girls may be taught to get an education and to earn their own living, but typically we also teach them to be really nice and to take care of everybody's feelings. And so you have both the imbalance in the way men and women are raised and also the, the fact that men are more likely to have access to well-paying jobs that make it much more likely for men to be coercively controlling of women. I do wanna say that most men would never treat a woman this way. I think that's important to say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're we're about out of time, so I want to ask you my final question, which I ask all my guests, which is, what is your feminist future? Well, thank you so much, um, Carrie and Buzz and Bill, and I will answer that as the child of the 60s and 70s that I am, that I picture, you know, peace, love, and harmony. I picture a world without violence where everyone can be who they are, and determine their own future without undue control by their partner, uh, their community, or the state. Thank you so much, Professor Fontes. My pleasure. It's really great to have you here. It really was great to have you here. Thank you. It is such an important topic. And thank you, Carrie Baker, as always. My pleasure. For bringing it to us. Uh, we are going to be talking about those elementary schools in Amherst. There is a, a referendum that's going to be on the ballot on May 2nd. And to talk about it uh, is the president of the town council and the chair of the town council's uh, committee on Ellis Elementary School building. We'll be right back after these messages. You don't This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Holyoke man pleaded not guilty in connection with damaging more than a dozen headstones at a cemetery in Northampton. 19-year-old Matthew James DeLude is facing multiple charges, including OUI and speeding. DeLude told police he saw three cars coming at him, one of which was traveling in the wrong direction in his lane of travel causing him to run off the road and into St. Mary's Cemetery. Over 20 headstones were damaged, which could cost over $100,000 to repair. Property owners of vacant storefronts in East Hampton will soon be required to register their buildings and pay a fee. The funds will be used to create an online database of rentals in the city. City Council approved new regulations last week, which are aimed at curbing blight and encouraging use of the 15 to 20 vacant properties downtown. Starting July 1st, all property owners will be required to register vacant storefronts with the city's building commissioner within 90 days of the space becoming empty. As part of that registration, the building owner will be required to pay a non-refundable permit fee of $5 for the entire year the building becomes vacant. Water and sewer regulations in Amherst are now in place following a town council meeting last week, but a decision on whether the town will take over maintenance and repair of the water and sewer lines has not been decided. There were some concerns from homeowners who are currently responsible for repairs on their property, even though infrastructure belongs to the public sector. Due to the potential cost to the town, the regulations and bylaws didn't address the topic. Councillor Anna Devlin-Gothier says she's planning on bringing a motion forward at a future meeting. 
partly to mostly sunny and breezy today. That breeze will make for another day of very high brush fire danger. It's best not to burn today. A high of 70 to 74. Scattered clouds, evening temperatures in the 60s, overnight low 46 to 52. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Remember the joy on the kids' faces when they rode the steamer train? The beautiful wedding in the sanctuary. Eating that rapidly melting ice cream cone by the water spray park on a hot day in July. For almost 100 years, Look Park in Florence has been the scene for weddings, cookouts, concerts, and lazy days in the sun. What do you remember about Look Park? The theme of Look Park this year is I Remember When, and Look Park wants to hear your stories. Share your favorite memories throughout the season in the park and online at lookpark.org. While you're there, get your 2023 season pass, only $70 for unlimited days in the park. Consider buying a second discounted pass to donate to a family in need through Look Park's partnership with the Northampton Survival Center, or donate directly to Look Park. 100% of Look Park's operating budget comes from entry fees, grants, and donations. Look Park in 2023, looking back on decades of memories and looking forward to creating decades of new ones. Share yours today. It's back. The Golf Club, presented by Swing Oil Beer Company. You get 11 rounds of golf to some of the best tracks in the area, like Keeney Park Golf Course, The Ledges, Wyckoff Country Club, Brattleboro Country Club, and more for only $1.99. Let's see. That's only 20 bucks a round. Now that's more than proper etiquette. A perfect treat for yourself or any hacker you know. And it's ready to go at the Shop 30 store for a limited time. The Golf Club, presented by Swing Oil Beer Company. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. If uh, you live in Amherst, the uh, that sound that you're hearing is the approach of May 2nd, when there's a really important referendum that is happening. And joining us to talk about it is Amherst Town Council President Lynn Griesmer and Councillor Kathy Shane, who is the chair of the elementary school building committee let's start with you lynn uh may 2nd coming up right so with the state law that allows for voting by mail if a community chooses to we actually are doing three different ways of voting actually four so there's you can vote by mail you have to apply for that and we had over 1500 people apply to vote by mail wow and those ballots should be received this week Okay. And it's really important. So let's talk about what they're going to be voting on. Okay. Let's summarize what it's the situation a straightforward is. Straightforward single question. Will you say yes to the town moving forward with building a new elementary school? Now, this has been in the Daily Hampshire Gazette a lot. We've talked about it before with you on the show, but I think we ought to just sort of summarize for people what is the issue about the elementary school. And could you tell us why you're voting on it as opposed to the town council just approving it? Okay. 
uh, the issue is the following. We have three elementary schools. Two of them are almost 50 years old or 50 years old. They were not pedagogically very good buildings to begin with, and construction-wise, they were even worse. So we are building one new, we are proposing to build one new elementary school to replace those two elementary schools. Those two elementary schools are Fort River and Wildwood. And the reason the people are being asked to vote is because this is a debt exclusion vote. That means there will be addition to people's taxes for the length of the debt. It's not like a two and a half override, which is a forever addition to the taxes. This is only for the purposes of building this school and the length of the debt. So let me turn to you, Kathy Shane. Why is it important to replace these schools? Uh, as, as Lynn said, they're aging and they weren't great for start with. We estimate it's up to $80 million to repair these schools, and that would just bring them up to decent standard ADA standards. The other thing is we have an amazing opportunity with the new school. Um, we're getting an over $40 million grant to help us with the costs. From and who? From the Massachusetts State Build School Building Authority. And they have approved it. The official approval will be coming in in a, about a week. But the other thing is that we can build for uh, the future with this school. The design includes incredible daylight throughout the building. Uh, opportunities for small and individual group study. Uh, we have a dual language program that's thriving, and it's a supportive and Last but not least, we're building a net zero building, which in simple layman's terms is all electric and there'll be photovoltaic with renewable. Because of the time we're in, when everyone's concerned about climate, the Eversource utility is willing to give us $1.6 million toward the cost because this is going to be an energy efficient building versus the old ones where the heat just goes out the windows. Um, and the federal government is willing to give us up to 30% of the cost of the solar and the geothermal. So it's a really exciting time. And, and, and I can't say enough about the opportunities for kids. There's an environmental science aspect for our youngest kids that they'll be in a learning lab. They can be watching the sun generate energy. They can go outside with vast fields where we're putting this and really being studying water flows. So it's, it's uh, investment in our kids and our climate. I have a question. I don't think anyone with a modicum of logic is opposed to the building or the idea of the building or the, all these improvements. What the fight is about is the money, right? So I wish you would address that. Is this a sensible, logical, reasonable amount of money for what Amherst will be getting? It is, and let me emphasize total cost of the school is somewhere between 95 to 97 million dollars okay that's part of that cost is the increase that we've seen just as regular inflation part of it is the supply chain that has been affected by covid and part of it is the inflation that's been affected by covid it's not going to be cheaper to build this school five years from now in addition to that if we turn down this grant from the Mass School Building Authority, we can kiss it goodbye. We will not get another one because this, is, this would be the second time in the space of about 10 years that we would have turned them down twice. That's $40.5 million. 
Wait a second. Let me just make sure I understand this. If they vote is no, if the yeses don't win, Amherst is going to lose some $45 million 40, from, 40 million dollars from, the from the state that it will never get or have the opportunity to get again. That's the bottom line here, yes? That is the bottom line. and Plus, plus the Eversource uh, grant, plus the, uh, the federal grants for the, right. for the, to make it a green building. Absolutely. And uh, we've also used some of our Community Preservation Act money to repair the fields, which are in bad shape as well. So it becomes a community resource as well as climate, as well as for kids. It's a great resource. And I just want to add, you know, because it's an investment in our future, I really see this huge return. When you said, what happens if we don't do it? What voters right now, a lot of them are saying is our roads are a mess. What we would have to spend to repair the old schools will mean we won't be able to do road repair. I mean, we're just in a, we're in a situation that turning down this amount of money for all the advantages it brings. And this is, by the way, ringing true to voters. Um, I've been out knocking on doors. The League of Women Voters unusually came out in support of this building because of the educational benefit and the value it is for the community. Well, right now, Amherst, you also have the library situation, too. Right. So let me do the math. You do the okay? math. Okay. Amherst has about a $100 million debt limit. If we don't go forward with this debt exclusion, over, over, debt exclusion vote, we will be spending... 80 million just to repair two schools that that's all we'll do they won't be any more really seriously energy efficient they won't be pedagogically any better they'll just be ada with a few electrical and heating and all this other stuff that we have to do in addition to that regardless of whether we go forward with the library as a renovation in addition or not the town has committed to paying 15.8 million toward that project. That's all we've committed. We're going to have to spend that much just to repair the existing library if we don't go forward. Again, turning down another state grant. And in addition to that, a group of residents working with the library are doing everything they can to raise additional money. So people keep talking about, well, we could just not do the library and put that money toward the schools. The reality is we're going to have to repair the library as well. We are in a no-win situation with our buildings in town, and that is not even mentioning a fire station, a Department of Public Works, the roads, and a long-desired new senior center. If I ever uh, decide to be president of town council in Amherst, hit me. Kick me. <laughs> so uh, do we have an idea? Let's just isolate on, on the questions before the mm -hmm. voters on May 2nd. How much of an increase, in order to do that, debt exclusion in order to borrow that money, how much of an increase in property taxes are we talking about? It, it's based on the value of your home. So, for example, if you live at Greenleaves and the value of your condo is $200,000, you're going to pay somewhere around $200 a year more in taxes. If you live in a much more expensive house, you're going to pay more. What has been misleading with the newspaper is they keep using the average price of a home in Amherst, and they keep saying that's what you're going to pay. So most people think they're going to pay $450 more a year, and that's just not true. It's based on where, how, what the value is of the property you live in. We also have renters that are very concerned. 
And so one of our recent actions is to look for additional ways to provide additional tax relief. And we've already gotten commitment from our legislative delegation to help us do that, but also rent relief because of the possibility that this may increase rents. So we're trying to go at this in every possible way with respect for our residents who basically either on fixed incomes or low income and make sure that we can do everything we can to help them. The other thing people need to remember is this will not hit your tax bill. The earliest it will start is 2025 and it won't be full force for about another two years after that. So I want to ask you, Councillor uh, Kathy Shane, in your district, I think it's District 1 that you represent? Yeah, it's North, that's North Amherst for people who don't know our districts, yeah. So do you have a sense of your constituents and what their feeling is with how they'll vote on May 2nd? So far, it's excitement on the yes vote for the double reasons of the educational benefits and the climate benefits. We have people who were the leaders in putting a net zero bylaw on our books who are going door to door. Um, this is, when I say the benefits for it, it's fewer emissions, emissions in the town. Um, we'll be all breathing cleaner air. Uh, people see the benefit of the fields. Um, so it's, the signs are cropping up around our neighborhood, and they're not at all at affluent houses. There's a lot of enthusiasm for the school. And when you say net zero bylaw, what, what are you talking about? That we're required, if we are building a new building, whether it's a fire station or a school, to make it all electric, get away from fossil fuels, and have enough owned renewable energy, largely solar panels, that offset the electric costs. This school, because it's so energy efficient, needs fewer solar panels than it might otherwise need. Um, so people are really delighted with the fact that it became an energy efficient, it's not a leaky building, it's gonna be highly insulated. Um, and so people understand that carbon neutral is another word some people use, that it's removing the pollutants from the air. So Councilor Kathy Shane, I understand the environmental argument. I do, I do. And I think it's of some significance, but it seems to me the underlying, underlying impetus for this is that Amherst is going to have to spend a huge amount of money. It's, and it's a significant amount of money. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. Mm -hmm. You can either spend it, you, the town of Amherst, can either spend it to repair buildings that are not worth repairing, or you can end up with a brilliant state-of-the-art 21st century new school. That's the choice. What do you want to spend the money on, not do you want to spend the money? That, Am I missing something here? That's a very good summary. And, and the spending money for the new state-of-the-art with educational benefits, and I can go on a, at length on that, is less money, than a lot less money than we would spend to repair to schools that people haven't liked for decades. Yeah, and they get you nowhere. Right. Get you and nowhere. We'll not reduce our administrative costs because we will still have to have three schools with three principals and three sets of all the other people that are part of that school. Uh, and it will also not reduce our carbon footprint, meaning our energy bills. And, you know, I just, when Lynn said the consolidation, we will save at least $250,000 each year in utility costs. I mean, this is an ongoing savings to the town. I don't know. In, in a minute or so we have left before we take a break. Um, I don't know whether it's true in Amherst, where I live, which is in the hill towns, um, we always want to consolidate in elementary schools because it's efficient 
to do that. But there's always a concern about kids traveling too far to get to their school. Is that an issue for Amherst? Come on. Amherst is only seven miles from north to south. This is not a long-distance trip. So I understand when a kid has to be on a school bus for two hours, but that's not the case in Amherst. Okay, not an issue. We're going to take a break. We're talking to uh, Amherst Town Council President Lynn Griesmer. We're talking about uh, Amherst Town Councilor Kathy Shane. We are talking about the May 2nd referendum on the elementary schools. We'll be right back after these messages. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. It happens all over Massachusetts. Anytime I choose. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's Restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Amherst Town Councilors uh, Kathy Shane and uh, Council President Lynn Griesmer. I wanted to ask you, Kathy, during the break you were talking about the safety issues involved in the proposed uh, uh, new building um, to house our elementary school students in Amherst. What, what is it about safety that you think people should know about? 
that this school, com especially compared to our existing schools, but this school will be state-of-the-art on safety. You will not be able to get into the school until you go through a, a glass vestry, but you will be signed in, and it's right by the administrative office. The side doors have special film over them, so this horrible incident we just read about where someone blasted their way through the door, you won't be able to get in through it. The glass will might shatter, but it won't implode. All the corridors can be shut off, and the teachers can lock their door from the inside with a deadbolt if they need to. So there's there's really been, um, we've had a safety expert come, and the police and fire, EMT, have gone around. Safety also is getting the kids out of the building quickly. There are plans for evacuation, sprinkler systems throughout the building um, in, in the smallest areas. So it, it's a very secure building. Um, while still allowing daylight into the classrooms. We're not building a prison. None of which is going to happen if you have to repair the schools and spend more than this on schools that can't be repaired and cannot come up to these kind of standards. That's right. Right now you walk, you get into a front door and you walk, 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 walk before you get to the administrative office. There's no, so if you can break through, there's, there's no second uh, line of defense. And the other thing, uh, President Griesmer, you were talking about during the break is that this is a the community is benefiting by having another gathering place. Could you explain that? So in, in addition to benefiting from cleaner air, the school itself as a building includes a stage in a cafetorium. The proposed school. The proposed school, thank you. A stage in a cafetorium with a music area, music rooms right behind that that can enter on the stage and includes a gym. And then on the outside includes the community playing fields, which are being restored at a higher level so they won't flood and therefore be too wet to play on. And Kathy may want to add to those other community benefits. I, the, the, um, you'd have to see the site. It's a 31-acre site. So there are going to be trail systems um, linking to these playing fields. Amherst early on bought some other land that has community gardens, and we're hoping at some point to do a bridge. So this opens up a whole area where new housing is coming in. So put a whole bunch of new families, um, we're hoping potentially families with kids, but new families will be living within walking distance all of, of yeah, all of Which this. you should point out is going to increase the amount of money for the, the town receives in taxes because that's the ta town's major source of revenue, which is real estate taxes. Right. Absolutely. And if, if our major tax-exempt employers, which are the two univer one university, big one, and the two colleges, were paying anything, toward us of their land value, of their building value, less would rest on our shoulders. A lot less would rest on our shoulders. We're unique. We're a mecca. People want to come and live here. But it also means um, less of our land is taxable. So UMass doesn't pay taxes on that huge swath of town that is its, that is its universities? It does not. What about Amherst College? And it neither, does not. Neither does Amherst College. They, they pay for water and sewer. They pay for the fire and EMS protection. UMass, and they give a donation now and then. UMass, and, uh, UMass does, not Amherst. Mm, yeah. They give a donation now and then. It's We haven't seen one in a while. So um, it's, a, and yet, for I'll just use UMass. UMass has 32,000 students, graduate and undergraduate, and 9,000 faculty and staff who come into our town for at least nine months every year, use our roads, and so forth, but they don't pay any taxes for us to do that. Bill Newman, you touched a nerve with that question right there. Whoa. 
and Amherst as well. There's no uh, that, payment, payment in lieu of taxes generally. Not, not and cer certainly not a regular one, and not to the tune that Smith College pays to the town of Northampton or that Williams pays to the town of Williamstown. I would love to continue this conversation, but we started with something I think should be reiterated. How can people vote? Okay. They can vote by mail. In fact, you can still get a mail-in ballot by going into the town clerk's office in town hall. You can vote by mail any time. It has to be received no later than May 2nd. You can vote by walking into town hall starting on April 24th. There will be four days where we have early voting. If you are a person who lives overseas, you can also request a special ballot for that purpose. And then the polls will be open on May 2nd from 7 a.m. in the morning to 8 p.m. at night. And once again, the single question on the ballot. Zip. Vote yes. Please vote yes. Okay. Could you articulate one more time what the question will be? The question is, will you say yes to providing the money to the town to build a new elementary school in place of our two exist two of our existing elementary schools. Is the question phrased as a debt exclusion or is it in y favor of the schools? It is. Yes, it's favored. It's complex language that has the word debt exclusion in it. And it it does in fact uh, require explaining to people what a yes vote is. Okay. So yes means there's a debt exclusion and there's a new school and no means there's no debt exclusion, there's no new school and you're gonna spend the same money to sort of repair buildings that can't really be repaired at all. You're going to spend more than the town was going to spend to repair those two buildings. My final question, Madam President, is this a unanimous vote by the town council? It, it, the actual vote for the, to put it on the ballot was unanimous. Okay. The vote for the actual uh, authorization to borrow was 12 votes in favor, one opposed, and it requires only a 50% plus one vote by the population. There we go. May 2nd. That's the plebiscite. side. Thank you, President Griesmer. Thank you, Councillor Shane. And thank you all for joining us today. Thanks. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hangar Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hangar Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hangar Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game. After work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from